You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 48 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this episode, we are chatting with Dr. Gino Caspari, a postdoc in archaeology at the University of Sydney and the University of College London. Dr. Caspari also runs a very popular archaeology Instagram account. You can find him at Gino Caspari that currently has over 123,000 followers. Good afternoon, Dr. Caspari. How are you doing today? Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I actually just came back from bouldering outside. So it's one of the first nice days, one of the first days we're allowed back outside in smaller groups in Switzerland. So lockdowns slowly coming to an end and life is hopefully returning to normal. So feeling pretty good. Excellent. Yeah, you're you're enjoying your day. It's it's 7 a.m. for me and Connor. So for anyone watching the video portion, if we look a little tired, it's because we, we're just waking up because you're in uh, you're in Switzerland right now, correct? I am and have been so for like the last year, which is rather unusual for me. I've been actually for the past 10 years. I never spent much more than three months in my home country and now I've been basically stuck here <laughs> for more than a year, which is a bit annoying, especially in terms of field work. That's where I am and it's not the worst place to spend your lockdown, I think. <laughs> I, I don't think so, from what I've seen of it. I just want to tell the audience real quick that like everyone has this romantic idea of what archaeologists are like. Like you see like Indiana Jones or like Tomb Raider and stuff. You live that life, dude. Like every picture you post, I'm like, this guy's doing martial arts. He's in Mongolia with hawks. Like what, what's going on, man? You got the coolest life. Well, I mean, obviously that is uh, Insta life and heavily biased on the nice <laughs> side of things. Being able to, to work in, in Russia and work in Northwestern China, you really got to jump through some hoops to actually make it happen. And yes, of course, the fun part is essential. Otherwise, I would, there's no way anyone would be doing it. But then there's the whole back office thing that everyone has to deal with that is just not really made to get likes on Instagram, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I gotcha. I, I always forget there's the Instagram bias, but at least your, your non-bias part is pretty awesome. Or your, I guess the bias part, the part we see. There you go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm selecting things, and I, you know, to a degree, everyone who works in the field has these stories to tell. That's something I always found strange, actually, because you know, either people in the public have this very strange Indiana Jones-like view of archaeologists, or they think it's super boring and it's just shards and mud and dust right and i uh, it's really somewhere in between and uh, everyone has these cool stories to tell but uh, people in academia rarely communicate openly about these things so i think that's something that you guys are doing a great job in getting that out to the public and it's something we should be doing more yeah. absolutely so other than posting awesome things on our instagram so you are a postdoc but you're also you're a postdoc for two different institutions Correct. UCL and University of Sydney. 
Well, I've been uh, jumping around quite a bit. I've been on several fellowships that just allow me to travel and work for my project. And since 2017, I have built up this large international corporation together with my Russian colleagues where we are excavating one of the earliest Scythian tombs out in the middle of nowhere in southern Siberia. And uh, this is really the main project that I'm running and what keeps me busy. And the university affiliations are more or less something that changes once in a while. I have a bunch of different collaborations going on, depending on topics people are interested in. And so things change. You go there, then you go there. (laughs) And sometimes you keep an affiliation for a little bit longer. Gotcha. Yeah. I think going from London to what it's Sydney, right? Right. That's where, uh, yeah, that's, (laughs) that's a move. All right. But yeah, you definitely, uh, have a very impressive uh, CV along with a very impressive social media presence. Is that the stuff in Russia? Is that the stuff that Trevor Wallace has joined you on? Exactly. Well, he's been basically working with me since 2015 on our documentary project, just trying to tell the story of how archaeology is done in a little bit more depth than what it's usually coming out as in documentaries, because I guess usually documentary production budgets are fairly tight and people just parachute in when finds are being made and they're like, oh, look, these people are finding these awesome items. And uh, that's not really what the process is like, right? And so what we've been trying to do for a while now, which hasn't been quite that easy, is actually tell the entire story behind actually getting to a point where you're making finds. I really like that. And I talked about this with Trevor and I can't remember what episode he was on, but uh, go check that out. But yeah, I think it's really cool to, to kind of explain that. And cause it's not always this, this glorious thing, especially in working in Russia where I assume the temperature is variable, the weather is variable and it might not be pretty every single day when you're actually out there <laughs> doing stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we try to have fairly long field campaigns uh, at this Royal Burial Mound. It's about 150 meters in diameter. So it's like a sizable site uh, with a huge periphery. The whole site was used over the course of almost 2,500 years. So there's a lot more than just early Iron Age finds. Starts somewhere in the Bronze Age and goes all the way to the Turkic period, so like the 6th century AD. You know, we try our best to get as far as we can in the time frame that is given to us through the environment. Um, We start in May, usually when it's open, still get some snowstorms here and there. And then June is fairly nice. That's where the sun comes out. But then uh, it's situated in this river area that uh, periodically floods. And so in July, it's really hot, it's flooding. And then, of course, you're in Siberia and in August, the mosquitoes arrive. And those beasts are by far worse than any snowstorm we've had so far. Basically, throughout the entire month of August, we have this black cloud over our tent. that is just sitting there. And once in a while, you go there with a flamethrower and try to wipe them out. But they just keep (laughs) coming. Till like end of August, where we have like the first night frosts and it gets minus five at night sometimes again. And then they die off finally. That's usually like a, a reason for celebration. Wow. 
it sounds like a good time, except when the mosquitoes are there, I guess. But I think the same thing happens in, in Laramie where we went to school. It'd be like beautiful weather all year. And then like August hits and it's just a black cloud of stuff that uh, it makes field work suck. But yeah, it's worth it. So what got you into being an archaeologist as a kid? I was interested in ancient cultures, for sure. That was something that's been sort of running through as a red thread. But I had like plenty of different ideas in mind. And even, you know, after doing my BA in archaeology, uh, I went into a completely different direction for a while. It just happened to coming back to it and mostly for the reason of uh, archaeology being this field science that really challenges a number of skills that I happen to have developed over the years. So it's interesting intellectually, but it's also fairly physical if uh, you're going into these remote areas. It's a leadership challenge. It's a lot of organizational stuff. You have to be very aware of cultural differences. You have to watch your communication. And it's just this sort of project management in this challenging environment is something that really appeals to me and fulfills me in a way. It just is something that makes me happy. And for now, it's a really good way, I think, to spend my time. Yeah, and I think when we first received your CV, it was interesting to see the different directions you took throughout your career. You know, you got a, a degree in history to s- start out. Is that, yeah, you started out with a minor in history and then some other stuff like that. And then you got, you know, a master of science in business administration. And then do, how do these, all these degrees help you work in the field today? Well, I guess it's like in retrospective, it's super easy to rationalize this. That doesn't mean that at the moment where I took the decision, it actually, I had like a long-term plan or anything. You know, the thing is, I started out with archaeology and art history because I was interested in it. Fair enough. You just got to try it out because once uh, you finish high school, um, I mean, you don't really know a whole lot about the world. You think you do, but then once you enter university, this this whole universe opens up and at first it kind of confuses you. So um, you got to start something and uh, see how it goes. And I guess in Switzerland, there's this very strong idea uh, socially of having a job, having a proper job. And a proper job usually is either, you know, being a doctor, a lawyer, maybe an engineer, maybe going into business. It's certainly nothing in the humanities. I guess my BA in archaeology wasn't all that challenging. And I had my friends always complaining about how easy we had it in the humanities. So I took a few business courses. I was like, oh, well, I can do that too. It's not that hard. And then I ended up pursuing a master's degree in it. That's how I got to that point. Then you finish your master's degree and you're like, well, damn, now I need to find a job, right? So at the same time, I had, since I've practiced martial arts, I've practiced Kung Fu for a while, I had uh, this interest in China and I had started learning Chinese. So I applied for a scholarship to go to China. Uh, learn the language a bit more properly. And then I basically had the option, okay, find a job in marketing or management or go to a completely new place that I really didn't know anything about and learn a new language, meet new people. And that wasn't really a decision for me at the time. It was absolutely clear, right? 
So that's how I ended up in China in the first place. Very cool. You know, I think we all like get to that point where we stare and on the precipice after getting an MA that you're like, what's out there in the world? But I'm glad that you found a, an interesting route to kind of take. So ultimately, you know, you went to China for a little bit and then you decided to get uh, a Master of Arts in East Asian Studies at Columbia. Was that a big transition going to living in America? And I mean, the real culture shock actually happened when I went to China because I couldn't speak the language and everything was different. So when I first wrote an email to the international students office at my small university in Xi'an, an email came back and was like, hello, who are you? And I was like, oh, okay, so they don't know I'm coming. Great. <laughs> so with regards to that, Colombia was a bit more organized, I have to say. And therefore, like, the transition wasn't, wasn't that hard at that point. You know, I've made sort of my uh, international experiences already. You know, it's, it's New York. You can figure things out. <laughs> What part of town did you live in, in New York? I was living on the Upper West Side, actually in the International House, right? Okay. So just a couple of hundred meters from Columbia. Really expensive, obviously. It was like a sort of <laughs> little broomstick <laughs> chamber or something like that. That cost me about $1,000 a month. But I was lucky to have a Fulbright scholarship at the time. That was actually the reason why I went there in the first place. Otherwise. Sorry, you guys, tuition fees are just nuts. That's like borderline criminal. So I mean, nobody would do a degree if you can do a degree in Europe. Yeah, well, not a bad part of town to live, but it definitely is expensive up there. Yeah, and then afterwards, just to kind of like go through this, you get your undergrad at uh, University of Bern in Switzerland. You get your master's in business admin at University of Bern. Then you go to China for two years. Then you come to the US. What, that took about... A year to get your master's? Two years? One year. Yeah, one year. You got that master's real quick in uh, well, East Asian really studies. You really don't want to pay for more tuition fee than necessary. Just, you want to cut those semesters short. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you there. And then you start working on your, your doctorate at the University of Hamburg in sin in sinology and archaeology, correct? But you started that in 2013. So Yeah, actually I did the two things in peril. So coming back from China, yeah. I was like, mm, okay, now I'm I have all these experiences and I have all the this access in China and I could bring it back together with archaeology, Chinese language and a sort of nice network uh, in areas that people actually haven't done that much research in. And so I basically went to a professor I knew at Hamburg University and told him, can I do a doctorate? Can I start doing my research? And they were like, well, you don't really have a master's in archaeology, so we cannot give you any funding, but you're welcome to do research. And so that's why I applied for Fulbright scholarships and stuff and ended up actually going to the U.S. to pursue this master's degree because that was something that actually sustained me. All right. That seems uh, yeah, pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's nuts, man. And, and with that, we'll be right back with Dr. Gino Caspari here on episode 48. So please stay tuned. Welcome back to episode 48 of the Life in Ruins podcast. We're here in segment two with Dr. Gino Caspari. The man, the myth, the legend. Much like Trevor Wallace on a previous episode, 
Gino has been overseas, specifically in Siberia, Russia area, doing a lot of archaeology on what's called Scythia. And I have a working knowledge of what Scythia was. I know Alexander the Great went out there and the, made work of them over there. And then there's also the lady who's the uh, leader in civilization that's uh, Scythian. But other than that, I know nothing. Would you be able to explain a little bit about Scythia? Because they're kind of a lesser known culture to people over here. They're also a playable faction in Rome Total War Two, and that's about <laughs> the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I guess that's a start. <laughs> Well, so overall, we have these horse-riding nomads appearing in uh, the first millennium BC, all over the Eurasian steppes, and Scythians, or or Scythians, I think in the Greek version it's written with an SK, Hmm. were really just, you know, a few peoples in the northern Black Sea region, just due to history of research has sort of become associated with the entire material culture of these highly mobile nomadic pastoralists of the early Iron Age. So if, you know, you usually refer to them as Scythians, but we don't really know if they saw themselves as that or if they saw themselves as something completely different. But that's how the whole culture history approach works, right? (laughs) Yeah, and so we basically uh, have three uh, characteristics that we find in these burials. They're they're dead into these mound burials, and they interred them with weapons, with horse gear, and with a very specific art form called the Scythian animal style, which features a lot of animal fighting scenes, and uh, a lot of the animals have these weirdly twisted hind legs, so we don't quite know what's going on. There's something strange happening there. The whole thing really came up in roughly the 18th century, other than sort of the other ancient antique cultures that people are sort of aware of. These really were more or less forgotten, but then quickly contextualized with Herodotus and his ethnography on the northern Black Sea region. And so people found these really nice golden items in burial mounds all across uh, the steppes. And very quickly, this became sort of associated with the Scythians and got people really interested because uh, it was something that wasn't really known before. That's super cool. And I'm actually looking up some of this art and it's and it's, it's pretty interesting. That would I understand why the Greeks were like, whoa, you know, Herodotus was Greek, right? I'm not crazy. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Just make yeah. it sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this, these uh, Scythian people seem similar to the Mongols in, in their lifestyle. And they're kind of doing that in the same place. Is that a, is that a fair comparison? I would say to to a lay audience, it's certainly a fair comparison. We have really this transition from the Bronze Age where we have just small scale transhumans pastoralism and then the use of the horse makes all the difference. And all of a sudden in the early Iron Age, people uh, use horses more extensively for both herding and transportation, but also for warfare. And that's what uh, they become famous for, for the sedentary peoples around their outer fringes because they're really quick in getting out, burning down a village, taking the stuff and heading back out into the steps. And um, yeah, people just 
didn't like that for some reason. <laughs> and this is why they frame them as these barbarian <laughs> hordes that just come out from nowhere and just disappear again. They were also super good horseback archers. For the Greeks, for example, you had these very structured kind of battles. And then once Mm -hmm. uh, one party was fleeing, uh, it was basically clear that the battle had been won. But with the Scythians, they just turn around and still shoot arrows at you, even though they're running away. And that seemed like a really unfair thing to do to a lot of people used to a bit more traditional, honorable warfare. (laughs) Yeah, not very civilized warfare. Uh, When you talk about the steppe, you're talking about the Eurasian steppe. So that's like eastern Ukraine, uh, Scythia, that, that culture area that also extends into Poland too, correct? Well, it goes a bit into Eastern Europe. It's Mm -hmm. mostly the Northern Black Sea region and then draws through the Caspian Sea to into Central Asia, large stretches of Kazakhstan. Then you sort of have the Altai Mountains that interrupted a little bit and continues east of it towards Mongolia. And so it's really this uh, large stretch of land, uh, of grassland, that you cannot really use for agriculture very much. And once people had horses and knew how to herd livestock, this made this entire environment economically viable. And this is one of the questions that we're looking at Uh, more intensively at the moment is like, when does this transition happen? Why does it become possible, etc.? Yeah, because that same like geographic area, it's really similar to like the Rocky Mountain Front Range, right? So for like call it for like David and Connor, that's, I mean, we're familiar with the Front Range, like it has that similar, what's landscape? It's Kansas. And so it's like the Front Range, Colorado. So it's not like, you know, mid prairie kansas it's like short prairie out here but it reminds me a lot because like here like thinking about the scythians to that kind of geography and then when you get horses in the the americas like the traditional horse nomads that we think here of indigenous tribes like cheyenne arapaho lakota this is like the same landscape that they're occupying as nomadic horse raiding cultures so i just think that's an interesting duality so what attracted you to researching uh, scythian archaeology Oh, funny enough, now I see this uh, red thread once again running through my CV that uh, somehow got in touch with nomadic horse people once in a while. And one thing is, I actually did my BA thesis on, on a Scythian topic already. I was looking into the labor expenses that went into building these burial mounds. And so early on, what attracted me to these nomadic cultures was that they're kind of metal in a way that these barbarians, they have these completely different customs, you know, and they seem just to be completely different than the sedentary people. And this difference was something that uh, I think was appealing to me also because a lot of our professors didn't seem to know a whole lot about it. You know, they come in once in a while. I was studying uh, Mediterranean and Near Eastern archaeology and, you know, once in a while, they make an appearance in the historical sources, but uh, they don't really become tangible in a way. And so that's what, what got me started. And that's what got me interested. I love that you called them metal because that is extremely accurate. <laughs> They're pretty hardcore. So you worked on your thesis about, did you ever kind of stray from being interested in that? And 
And what ultimately got you back into working in the field, specifically on these sites? Well, so my main focus really, aside from these early Iron Age tribes, are is a methodological focus uh, on remote sensing and landscape archaeology. And that's what I'm, I'm really doing with most of my papers is actually trying to look at human landscape interaction of sorts. What got me into working in Russia was basically more a lack of opportunities of working in China because I had built up my PhD research project in northwestern China, so in Xinjiang. And back in 2013, when I started my PhD, I had traveled there a couple of times. I had made some friends among the local Uyghur minority. And I started to develop this really nice network up there that apparently nobody seemed to have. Because whenever I looked at maps in archaeological publications, I saw that it kind of stopped with the Russian border. Maybe somebody took in Kazakhstan, or then somebody was just exclusively working on Mongolia. But that upper area of China, there was just not a whole lot of data on it, which uh, was accurate as an assessment, but kind of naively assuming I had found something that nobody had really looked at yet. (laughs) There was, of course, also a reason for there not being a lot of data. And that was that access is extremely hard. (laughs) So, you know, things have deteriorated since then with all the human rights issues that we have in the area. That was perceivable at the time, but you could still kind of weasel your way around things, around the regulations. People were a bit more lenient towards foreigners at that point in time. And so I actually was able through good contacts and friends up there actually being able to pull off a survey in that area was great that's really what got me through my phd but since 2017 field work in xinjiang is essentially impossible it's as hard as working in tibet and so um getting off that tangent that was basically the reason like I will not be able to work here in the future and at least not be able to sort of build a sustainable project that delivers data on a regular basis. And so I need to go somewhere else. And a logical idea was to just kind of jump across the border into Russia and continue my research there because with the uh, material culture, I was already familiar. And there's just a language barrier and a nation state border in between, which obviously didn't really matter in the ancient times. Can I ask you some like nerdy archaeological questions regarding the Scythians? Because I'm like generally interested. Go ahead. So uh, what's the time span that the Scythian culture existed from? Well, so basically we look at them as being roughly between the 9th and the 3rd, maybe 2nd century BC. Okay. And then the That's over an entire Eurasian step. Okay. Um, settlement patterns. That's a tricky one because um, Scythians having really nice shiny objects in their burials uh, and being nomads, obviously archaeological focus um, has been mostly on the nice shiny objects. Um, that's course. only something that we're really just starting to look into and um, 
it's at the very beginning, this kind of research. So we're starting to actually find uh, campsites and things like that uh, now that people start looking for them. Before that, people would just kind of like wave it off as, well, they're nomads. Of course, they don't live anywhere to just move around <laughs> which of course is not that simple when you start looking into it there's still not that much data around in some areas they're a bit more sedentary especially if we're going towards eastern europe you have some hilltop settlement type of things but in the eastern steppes the picture is very much vague and fuzzy I guess my assumption was that, like you said, that the, that nomads would produce. It'd be hard to find campsites of these kind of nomadic people, but it's it's just that people haven't really looked for them, right? It's you can find them, and then like a bunch of modeling tools out there now where you can look at for pasture quality and find ways how people move through the landscape, and that gives you some preliminary ideas where you could be looking for but they're very fleeting traces and usually you know you get bits of charcoal a few pottery shirts and then that's it so it's nothing spectacular something that is hard to find funding for even though obviously the question is super interesting and important because we don't just want to look at the world of the dead we also want to look at the world of the living Exactly. Well, I think uh, with that, we're going to take our, our next break and we'll be right back with segment three of episode 48 right after these messages. Welcome back again to episode 48 of the Life Learns podcast. We're here in segment three with Dr. Gino Caspari. Gino, I have social media envy for you. You've got, I think, like a couple times the amount of followers that I have. So I guess my question would be one. How did you get started with that? What made you get started with it? And then two, you enjoy it? <laughs> Do I enjoy it? Yeah. yeah, very much depends on the day. Um, <laughs> how I got started I is, is a good question. I think I was mostly forced by my friends because they were like, well, do you know, you have a nice and interesting life. We guess people would be interested and you could amass quite a following with that. I was like, yeah, I'm really not a big fan of this. Do I really have to? And I started off and it it just kind of took off. So uh, that's how this whole misery started. And I guess uh, now I got to feed the beast. Uh, that's <laughs> really how it's going so far. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> cool. With my, I think, what, 26, 27,000 I have, I get some interesting characters some that message you every day wanting to be your best friend. And then two, I get some really, really weird messages and just like being called out for this and that. Do you get that kind of stuff? I mean, I try to ignore some of it. I try to be nice overall because right. it just really doesn't help getting into arguments with people who are not to be argued with. Overall, I think it's a really useful way to, uh, bring archaeology and the 
everyday life of an archaeologist out there to a broader audience and tell people about how things really are. Uh, of course, there's the social media bias that we've talked about at the beginning, mm-hmm. but at least you can break a little bit with these stereotypes that people have in their heads. And there's a fair amount of these stereotypes out there, ranging from, yes, this is completely super boring to like, you're in the Indiana Jones, right? I think that helps a lot. Also with a certain respect for our profession and understanding why we are needed and what we actually do. And uh, just overall get people interested in ancient cultures and heritage that they're sometimes not that much in touch with. Yeah, I think that's an awesome way to look at it. I mean, that's the goal, right? Like to get it out there for people to see. Yeah, and there's like an aspect of archaeology that probably people, you know, don't understand from a non-professional, and that's not just degree seeking, but from a non-professional archaeologist or non-professional person regarding looking at archaeology, right? Big misconception is that it's treasure hunting, that what we do is basically we study these things, we go out to go look for treasures to make ourselves rich, which is not how we've done things for a while now. And the other is that even though we study things in the past, they have relevance for today in modern, even geopolitical contexts, right? So when you are posting on on social media, your Instagram account in, in particular, ultimately, what is it you're trying to communicate? Is it that flashy aspect or is it more of really that that the, the, the fascinating side of like fieldwork of archaeology? Well, I think it's it's both. There are some constraints with regards to the overall environment of social media because some things just won't work. I cannot post, you know, tables and graphs because people don't look at these things. They're not on Instagram for looking at raw data, essentially. So you have to frame it in a certain way that it becomes accessible to people. And the image often is just, in my case, a kind of hook for the caption where they can then go further and start actually learning about things and asking, importantly, most of the time, just asking their own questions, just trying to understand that things are maybe not as clear cut as they always imagine things would be. Now, of course, this creates a little bit of tension with the academic colleagues, because at least from, say, the older generations, they don't quite understand what social media does. It's like mostly a bad thing, I guess. People sometimes call me out for, you're not accurate. This is oversimplified. And it's like, well, guess what? It's not an academic article. It's we a different format. Characters. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you sort of need to break it down for a general audience. You know, I could, of course, talk about, for example, highly nomadic pastoralists of the early Iron Age, or I could just say Scythians. Scythians is maybe not as accurate in many cases. But the other thing has like this whole background of concepts that you need to first understand before you even get to read the caption. And it's just not what your everyday person wants to do. (laughs) So in a way, you're really putting yourself out there and sometimes in between a rock and a hard place because 
your academic colleagues don't like you for getting the exposure often. And the public sometimes doesn't like you for being maybe too rigid on your ideas and things like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky balance to catch. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask, because you work in Russia and Siberia, have you had any issues with posting some of your research and any interference from, say, governments that don't want that data out or things like that? Since I have worked with my Russian colleagues for years now, uh, we have a very good mutual understanding of what things actually belong out there into the public and what things don't. So it's mostly, I think, international corporations in general are mostly a question of good communication. And that just, you know, that has all these different issues associated with it, including cultural ideas, how things are being done, that you have to be aware of. But once you're at this point, you can make things happen and you can actually give people exposure for great projects that don't necessarily even get the exposure in international academia because a lot of Russian colleagues are almost exclusively publishing in Russian. And they have amazing findings, but they don't really get into the good international journals, for example. And so there are real treasures out there that, in my opinion, deserve more exposure. And the work of my Russian colleagues deserves more exposure internationally, so that it really is fit into an international scholarly discourse as well. And so I think we haven't had issues with putting things out there for a long time, actually, because people are glad that this is happening and they deserve it, frankly. Yeah, I I 100% agree. And from just my own limited experience working in Ukraine, which I probably needs to be bleeped out at this point because I mentioned Ukraine, God knows, since since I've been there. But one thing I noticed really quick is that most of the articles written on Ukrainian archaeology are either in German or Russian. And then those articles aren't translated to English. And it's hard for, you know, especially Americans, because our language literacy is like one of the lowest in the world. Like I can tell you how to get to the biblioteca down the street, <laughs> thanks to my very, very limited uh, Spanish knowledge from high school. But that barrier of language and talking about global history and world heritage is a huge problem. Like one of the things that I, I noticed is that for the Ukrainian PhD students in archaeology, they have to pass an English literacy test just so that they can perform their work in their own country because that's kind of like this the one of the major academic languages is English. Like we had a Danish archaeologist on Maria. Her episode comes out, I guess, tomorrow for us, but for the people that are listening, it's already it's already out. And like her whole degree program in archaeology was in English in her home country of Denmark. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think I think only like building off that only the big finds get translated in English. So like anything you hear about Siberia is like mammoths, you know, frozen mammoths, stuff like that. And that stuff gets translated. But it seems like there's this whole body of work that we're missing because it's not as sexy as frozen mammoths with in the, in the tundra up there. So it's it's interesting that these finds aren't generating this, this stuff. And I'm glad that you're promo- promoting stuff like that, Gino. I think it's really cool. 
No, absolutely. I mean, this is a general problem, of course, but it's in particular a problem in Central Asian archaeology because, well, you have all the Russian sources, but then you also have Mongolian, you have Chinese, and uh, these nation-state borders are really visible in the research. And you see that there's some scholars from Germany who speak really good Russian. They publish well-written articles, but leave out the entire Chinese side of things. And I think there's one reason why in these areas we need to work together to actually produce outcomes that just go across regions and give a bit a better impression of what has actually been going on. Because people just discard entire regions, entire material cultures, basically based on a language barrier, and that's really not how you should be doing science. We actually just have uh, submitted a paper to Clause 1. We'll, we'll see if it gets through, but it's talking about this material culture complex from the uh, 3rd to the 4th century AD in southern Siberia. When I put it into uh, Google Scholar, it's called the Kokel culture. It's a very local thing that has a long research tradition in Russia. Uh, but if you put it into Google Scholar, I think about five articles come up, and none of them really has this as the main topic. So if you work in Central Asian archaeology, you get to actually introduce entire cultures, if you want, to an international scholarly audience. That is awesome. Right. Like, isn't that that's the goal is to be the guy that everyone cites, that you have all the all the information, even though you might be not the original researcher, but making it you know publicly accessible or, you know, accessible to a wider audiences. Well, I mean, uh, you know, in more. my case, actually, I, I think I don't really deserve to be the first author on a study like that. Those are my Russian authors because they uh, or mm -hmm. my, my Russian colleagues, rather, because they have the knowledge about these cultures. I am often taking more of a translator type of perspective where I really take their texts and I redesign them in a way that they actually make it into international journals. There's also a lot of theoretical developments from mainly, I guess, the Anglo-Saxon American uh, world that hasn't really made it into Russia. So there's a lot of potential issues involved with the older research that needs to be intertwined with the data that we have that is, uh, in terms of quality, very good. And so uh, I think having this mediating function, but leaving the first authorship to Russian colleagues is important. Excellent. Shifting gears here, I, I got a question for you, and I, I try to ask this to a lot of our guests. If there was one thing that you like are super interested in that you'd want to tell the world about or like maybe just like your favorite thing you found over there or in your career like what would that be well i mean people often ask me what was the most interesting find that you've made in your career so far and for me it was in 2017 where we had mounted this small expedition just a bunch of friends of mine and myself going to southern siberia and we had spent roughly half a day trying to dig a tractor out of a swamp because we had tried to get to the site and it had like sunk completely into the mud. Oh man. And so we arrived on the site quite exhaustedly, started where we had left off with the excavation. And first we found super well-preserved wood, 
that uh, was part of this large burial mound that we're now working on. First of all, having organics on a site is always great news for an archaeologist, obviously, mm-hmm. because there's just so much more that you can talk about if uh, some of these things are left over. And then just about 20 centimeters below it, there was this big piece of mud that just came off and below it, there was frozen ground. I put my hand on it and it was just, oh, this is this is ice. This is really cold. And then immediately, of course, the implications come in. It's like, whoa, this could mean that there are preserved textiles. There could be preserved human tissue even. There could be horse hair and all these different things. And this, this whole world of questions opened up at that very moment. And so what people, I think, often don't get is it's not really about the shiny things because well, you can find another piece of gold and yeah, you don't really get to keep it as an archaeologist anyway. So it's like another piece of gold. Mm -hmm. But contexts like these and understanding the implications of a frozen piece of mud, that's what really gets us excited, I think. Yeah. And I think we talked about this in the episode about the dig, but like, it's more about the behavior and like the daily life of people in the past than it is about, you know, shiny stuff. Though I do love a good shiny thing, but like, yeah, it might seem boring to a lay person, but that, I mean, finding wood in the step must be really awesome for you guys, you know? And and with that, Dr. Kaspari, like, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And so, uh, what are a couple sources that you would recommend for anyone interested in Scythian archaeology or Central Asian archaeology that you found extremely helpful? Ah, well, I... I knew that question was coming. <laughs> I just didn't know the actual topic. So I was <laughs> uh, giving it uh, a thought. And so I've prepared three sources, but they don't relate to Scythian archaeology, really. Oh, that's fine. Throw yeah, them down. We're fine. just yeah. happy to. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, to be honest, for the Scythians, there's really not that much good scholarship with regards to like a a general introduction on these uh, horseback warrior nomads out there in the English language. And I think that's something that is probably will have to be written uh, further down the line. Maybe once I finish my project or something like that. (laughs) They're really good sources in German, by the way, if you read German. (laughs) But what I was thinking about more like books that got me excited about archaeology of the steppes anyway. And I think one classic that you shouldn't miss out on is Frozen Tombs of Siberia by Sergei Rudenko. Um, That's sort of uh, the classical one, uh, discovery of the Paziric tombs high up in the Altai Mountains with frozen mummies and tattoos and horses dressed up as mythical creatures. Amazing stuff. Definitely something you can read, and it's in English. Another thing that I've recently read is uh, David Reich's uh, book on who we are and how we got here. It's basically a general outline of ancient DNA and how it can be used uh, for archaeological questions. And I think the longer, the more we actually need to work with ancient DNA because it feeds into so many questions that we traditionally already had in archaeology about migrations, about relationships between people, etc. So that's a really good introduction 
if you're interested in the topic and basically know nothing about it. Okay. I think one of my favorite, all-time favorite books is Kontiki by Thor Heyerdahl, which is just something, it's, it's essentially an adventure story, but really gets across the excitement of testing out theories and trying to, to actually make archaeology exciting, because it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's awesome. I hadn't heard of those last two books to check those out myself but where can our listeners find you social media or academia anything like that yeah so of course uh if you're generally interested in what i'm doing and a bit of of private life as well outdoor adventures and stuff just check out my instagram at gino caspari otherwise there's a bunch of papers out which are accessible through researchgate and academia.edu okay awesome uh, I'll actually have to check some of your stuff out too. I was looking at your CV and was like, what? So <laughs> give that a look. Because this is a life in ruins, we have to ask this question. So would you, Gino Caspari, first start off in school in Switzerland and then go to China and then spend some time in China, go to America and then go to Germany and then ultimately study in Russia and live a life in ruins if you had the opportunity to do it again? Well, I have no regrets so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. We just interviewed Dr. Gino Caspari. You can find him on Instagram at Gino Caspari. And uh, please be sure to rate our podcast on Spotify and iTunes, wherever you're listening to it. You can also send us, I mean, please review us. Send us questions at a life and roads podcast at gmail.com. If you want to know Carlton and or Gino's hair routine, you can also ask us those questions. So we'll let you know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on that note guys uh, see you next week bye thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast you can follow us on instagram and facebook at a life in ruins podcast and you can also email us at a life in ruins podcast at gmail.com and remember make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer I think I've been saying this wrong. My dad sent me basically a beautiful link that I can get all my dad jokes from. He didn't write these all. He's pretty he's pretty witty, but he did not write all these. So um, I'm Buzz Aldrin, second man to step on the moon. Kneel before me. Thank That's you. Good. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Now I need another coffee. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.